This is a HeadGum Podcast. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I don't know the truth. Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me on the show once again. It's a it's a delight to have you listening. It's a delight to be recording this podcast. It's the best part of my week, and uh, we're going to have some fun together. If you live in the United States, I uh, hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, um, and hope that the upcoming month of December treats you well. Let's talk about Cuba this week. Despite being just you know 90 miles from Key West, Florida, Many in America think of Cuba as an especially foreign place. We have a tendency to treat the island as special, as different from other islands and nations in the region, and as an especially worrying one. You know, we're not blocking trade with the Dominican Republic or limiting tourism to the Bahamas. It's difficult to even imagine what it would be like for Barbados to be a topic for every presidential debate over the last 60 years. But Cuba somehow takes that place. It looms large in the American imagination as something that's scary, a frightening specter just looming over the horizon. Why is that? Well, our thinking on Cuba is very much colored by the Cold War and the fact that Cuba, to an extent, played for the Red Team. We all grew up being taught about Fidel Castro, the near apocalypse, the Cuban Missile Crisis, how Cuba was a lurking communist threat to our national security, right in our own backyard. But here's the strange thing. <laughs> that view of Cuba is just the most recent chapter of U.S.-Cuba relations. And it's a very narrow way to look at the relationship between our two countries. Like, it's not as if Cuba just emerged from the bottom of the Caribbean during the Eisenhower administration. Cuba has actually been there just as long as the United States has. In fact, even longer. And the truth is, far from being a foreign other place, Cuba's history is deeply intertwined with the United States and has been from the very beginning. You know, as a global hegemon, we love to imagine that history is divided into us, what happens in America, and them, what happens everywhere else. But the truth is, our histories are deeply interrelated in countless ways, and you simply cannot tell the history of one place without also telling the history of the other. And that is the project that today's guest has embarked upon. Our guest today is Ada Ferrer, a historian at NYU and the author of Cuba and American History. This conversation was fascinating, and I know you're going to love it. Please welcome Ada Ferrer. Ada, thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. So tell me, your new book is titled Cuba and American History. Uh, what, tell me about that title. What, how is the history of Cuba tied up with the history of America? Yeah, well, I, the title has multiple meanings. Uh, one, I like to have readers question some of their assumptions from the start. So I say to them in the beginning that if you look at the at, at America from the outside in, from the perspective of the rest of the world, it isn't even really America because the term America is actually used to describe a whole hemisphere, right? North, South, Central America, the Caribbean. So uh, yeah. one thing is to trouble that assumption that America is an easy or unproblematic synonym for for the United States. It isn't. Uh, but the most important meaning for me of the title is that Cuba and the U.S. have such a long connection going back centuries, going back to the time of the U.S.'s founding, even before that. So, and, and the U.S. has played an outsized role in Cuban, in Cuban history. Cuba has also been a recurring presence in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. So my sense is that if you look at the history of a place like Cuba, in which the U.S. has been so present historically, mm -hmm. that looking at that history is also a way to look at U.S. history, to look at U.S. history from the outside in from the perspective of an outsider, from the perspective of another part of the world. Mm. And I think it's valuable for Americans to think about their own country as it appears through the eyes of another. So that's kind of what I wanted to do, to look at, to have people engage with the history of Cuba as the history of Cuba, but also as a kind of partial, selective, outsider's view of U.S. history itself. That's really fascinating. Um, and those. Thank you. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to hear more about it, but it does, you know, really, it always strikes me how much the history of the places are entangled in a more complicated way than we often, like, you know, I grew up in America, you know, being told, or in the United States, being told, this is the United States, and, you know, these are the other countries, right? And these are right. sort of like set in stone, which are which. And then, you know, it it just happened uh, that a couple months ago I was in the U.S. Virgin Islands mm -hmm. and to a place I had never been to, St. Croix, um, which is part of the United States. But everybody drives on the other side of the street. Everybody drives on the left in St. Croix, right? And, and maybe start reading on Wikipedia, what's the history of this island, et cetera, et cetera. And looking at, you know, all the islands in the region. And it made me start thinking about like, oh, all of these... <sighs> So, uh, like all of these islands, their history happens simultaneously, right? As they did in the, you know, with the United States itself, all of this stuff is happening simultaneously. Some of those islands ended up being part of the United States. Some right. didn't, um, but they were all like interwoven at every point. Like, they, you know, they're all colonized during the same period. Right. Um, and, and so, that, of course, their histories are intermingled. Yes. And actually, Cuba came very, very close to becoming part of the United States. Really? In the 19th century at several points. Yes. Uh, even, you know, Thomas Jefferson, shortly after U.S. independence, says that the, the ideal map of the United States would include Canada on the north and Cuba on the south. He prophesied or he wanted, he fantasized that the southern border of the U.S., would be the southern coast of Cuba. And that wow. was, um, I believe, in the late 1780s. Uh, you know, after that, many, many people tried to make that happen. John Quincy Adams used to say that Cuba was like a ripe apple on a tree. 
and a ripe apple always has to fall. And when the ripe apple of Cuba fell, it had to fall into the United States, which wow. would, you know, receive it as part of, of, <laughs> of the, of the country. And a lot of people really tried to make that happen, especially in the 1840s, 1850s. Yeah. And why didn't, I'm sure that's a very, a much easier question for me to ask than it is for you to answer, but I had no idea of that history. Why then, if so many presidents were trying and, and people thought it was inevitable, why didn't it happen? Well, a lot of it has to do with the history of slavery, actually. You know, a lot of, for a long time, the impetus be, uh, to making Cuba part of the United States was to strengthen the power of slavery here mm. in the U.S. So a lot of the proponents of annexing Cuba, that's what they called it, annex, it's annexation, the annexation of Cuba to the United States, were powerful Southerners. And they imagined annexing Cuba as two or three or even four slave states because they thought that would increase, that would obviously increase their power in Congress if there were four, you know, three more slave states to protect the interests of slavery. So wow. that was the impetus in the 1840s and the 1850s. There were actually expeditions launched from the U.S. South, from, from New Orleans and organized in places across the South. Um, you know, that, that intended to do that. And they believe that just as Mexico, you know, think of Texas, you know, Texas had been Mexico, Mexican, then it was, um, a territory and then it was annexed, uh, to the U.S., right? Um, yeah. and they, that's fully what they expected, um, that would happen in Cuba. Part of the reason it didn't ultimately was that, you know, with slavery ending in the U.S., as a result of the Civil War, the Southerners' interest in annexing Cuba waned because what would be the point of a Cuba at that point still had slavery. Huh. So if the U.S. added Cuba after the Civil War, it would mean adding Cuba to liberated slaves, and and Southerners had no interest in doing that. So interest in that in that waned um, quite a bit. Got it. So it it became less appealing to whatever forces, the forces in the United States that wanted yeah. to annex right. Cuba. Yeah. But Cuba also simultaneously had its own history happening. It wasn't just sitting around waiting for America to decide whether or not to oh, exactly. annex yeah. it. Well, let's let's go. Let's start a little bit earlier. Like, let's let's go back to the beginning. I mean, the familiar, you know, the story of how America was colonized. Um, by the British and other nations is like very well told, partially on this show. We've had episodes on the on that before. Um, what was that history for Cuba? Yeah, well, you know, Cuba was, you know, it's an island. It was and is an island in the Caribbean. It was inhabited by indigenous people that m most of which came to be called the the Taino. The Christopher Columbus on his very first voyage to the New World landed in Cuba and spent about three weeks there. Um, then he returned on his second voyage, uh, really full-fledged Spanish colonization of Cuba began in 15, um, 1511. And initially, you know, the, the, the Spanish wanted to find gold and they wanted to find, uh, native communities able to, to mine it. And Cuba mm -hmm. didn't have large sources of gold and the indigenous community was, uh, was quickly declining due to war and uh, disease, um, suicide, even suicide was rampant mm. among the indigenous during the early colonial period. And when the Spanish then uh, went on to Mexico and later to, to the Andes and discovered these massive 
indigenous empires, the Aztecs and the Inca, and massive stores of gold and silver, the Spanish focused more on those. And mm -hmm. and Havana or Cuba became kind of a back, a little bit of a backwater because most of the most of the attention was paid to these other places, rich in mineral wealth. But what ended up happening is, is the rest of the European powers, the British, for example, or the French, realized the wealth that that Spain was acquiring from these uh, empires, those the, those other countries started attacking Spain, and they attacked it in, on the high seas by, you know, commissioning privateers and corsairs, pirates, etc., to attack mm -hmm. Spanish, Spanish ships full of gold and silver. And so at that point, the the Spanish responded by um, by mili militarizing and fortifying some of their, uh, you know, some of their the sites in the New World. And Havana, in particular, became it became kind of a Spanish fortress. So they started building forts to repel pirates. Um, they Havana sits at a really interesting place. If you look at a map, it sits kind of where the where the Gulf Stream gathers in between the Gulf of Mexico, the meeting of the Caribbean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. And so mm. the Gulf Stream is a really rapid current that goes up, you know, through the through the Bahamas and up along the coast of North America and then out into the Atlantic Ocean into Spain. Because it gathers in Havana, it made, you know, Havana became this place where all the Spanish treasure ships would meet to then make uh, the journey across the Atlantic. Because there was like a highway meeting. Yeah, in sea this, highway. Yes. This is the rest stop at, on the sea highway. Yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah. And so you had like dozens and dozens of ships carrying, you know, lots of gold and silver that would winter there waiting for the right time. And and so uh, if, if you think about the, the early colonization of, of, of Cuba, that's a major part of the story. Wow. Well, uh, okay, but I know that when I think of Cuba, I, I think of sugar. I know that sugar yes. is a very important part of the story. Where does that come in? So sugar's there. I mean, Columbus brings, uh, you know, he, he stops in the Canary Islands on the way to the New World, or what, you know, what was then called the New World. It wasn't new to the people who had lived there for mm -hmm. ages and ages. Yeah, certainly not. Right. But he, so he brought sugar cane cuttings from the Canary Islands uh, in his, in his first voyage. But, and there was a, a nascent sugar industry in places like, you know, what is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. That was then Española. There was sugar in, in Cuba in that early period period. But sugar becomes the the dominant crop and the focus of the whole Cuban economy and determines the character of the Cuban economy and Cuban society beginning in the late 18th century. Mm. So that's really um that's really when it when it takes off and it takes off for various reasons the the Spanish realize on their own that there's other kinds of colonial wealth. Not all colonial wealth has to be in minerals. You mm -hmm. could have, you know, you could have an empire of commerce in these agricultural, valuable agricultural goods like sugar. Uh, and so they realize that and they're, they're more open to it. Uh, there's another very important moment, which is, um, the British actually attack Havana during the Seven Years' War and they defeat the Spanish there and the British become the rulers of Havana for about 10 hmm. months in oh, wow. 1762. Yeah, so so Havana becomes part of the same system as, you know, Virginia and South Carolina and Massachusetts and so on, briefly for about 10 months. But in those 10 months, the British really try to develop uh, 
sugar. And so they remove taxes on sugar. Most importantly, they, they drop all restrictions on the entry of, of slave ships. Hmm. And so there's, uh, the, the importation of, uh, of enslaved and captive Africans escalates under the British in that brief period. So mm. that's enormously important. But the main thing happens a little bit later with the start of the Haitian Revolution in mm. 1791. So the Haitian, yeah. I don't know if you've had episodes on the Haitian Revolution here. We did We did on our, uh, uh, an episode of our TV show, we talked about yeah. very briefly about the Haitian Revolution, which is one of the most interesting events I have learned about in world history. Like, yes, tell, tell absolutely, me. Absolutely. 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 It's one of the most interesting and important events yeah. uh, in world history. So the Haitian Revolution um, occurred in what was then the French colony of Saint-Domingue. So obviously France was in the throes of a revolution uh, beginning in 1789. Uh, Saint-Domingue was its most it's its wealthiest most you know most important colony it produced most of the sugar consumed in the world it produced uh it was responsible for a huge part of the french economy and was incredibly profitable mm. and during the revolution enslaved people there uh begin their own revolution uh in august of 1791 and they, the rebels begin, you know, they take to the mountains, they burn plantations, and the French are unable to defeat them. And so mm. the, the Haitian Revolution goes, you know, ends with Haitian independence in, on January 1st, 1804. But and this that, is, and this is one of the world's, my understanding is this is one of the world's only successful slave revolution, or in, in which a slave state, the slaves revolted, you know, threw off their shackles and created a new nation. Right. Is that correct? Yes, that's incredible. correct. I mean, it lasted a really long time. And there's, you know, it's it, and it's an incredibly complicated event. The enslaved at times ally with the French. Anyway, so it's it, 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 yeah. there's lots of ups and downs H- in that period. History is a mess, but History's it's always a, a mess, cool story. But, <laughs> uh, oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And uh, it is the only time that enslaved people were able to... Uh, throw off their shackles permanently and they created a uh an independent state that was led by black men former slaves um and and that ba- and if you think about that moment when that happened you know Haiti uh they called it Haiti which was in the original indigenous name oh. uh for the island it's surrounded by these islands that are colo- that are colonies and that are slave states. And here you have Haiti standing as the opposite of that, yeah. an independent island, an island in which there will never be slavery. And their constitution made that really clear. Slavery will never exist uh, in Haiti. But, you know, what that means in terms of the, the, the Cuban story, well, it means a lot of things for the Cuban story. <laughs> but one, one, one thing it means is that the Cuban planters, the sugar planters said, and one of them said this explicitly, the hour of our happiness has arrived. Yes, we, the we Cuban planters or we plant, you know, we feel bad for the French, but really this is our chance. And mm. the, the sugar industry, because of the revolution, declines in Saint-Domingue. And this is their opportunity to kind of sweep in and, and develop their own sugar industry oh. much more. And they capture- saw it as an, you're saying the capitalists saw it as an opportunity. 
Yes, absolutely. Oh. And so as and then and that's and it worked, you know, Cuba became the largest producer of sugar in the world wow. uh, after the after by the 1820s. So in they that, weren't worried the they were going to they weren't worried they were going to have their own slave rebellion. Yes. That's one of the other things it meant that, you know, they you know, they were developing this society uh, built on slavery, built on sugar, built on the sugar plantation, but in a moment that, that comes after the Haitian Revolution. So they know that example exists. But basically what they, since they know that it's a possibility, they protect against it. And mm. uh, they're always aware of it. They do kind of white colonization things so that the the population imba imbalance is never as great as in Haiti. That's one of the mm. things they do, for instance. Um, and they're just more, they're more aware that it's a possibility so they can, they can, they can step in to repress any movement, uh, yeah. quite brutally. And the other thing that it means for Cuba is if you think about it from the perspective of the enslaved themselves, uh, they're seeing, they're seeing two things happen at once. You know, they're seeing that there are more and more of them. There are more and more Africans arriving in chains. Mm -hmm. uh, the pace of work is increasing because the sugar industry is taking off. So there's more demands. So they are living, right, body and soul, the hardening of slavery, right? Yeah. The escalation of slavery, uh, the transformation of slavery into an even more brutal system. So on the one hand, they're living through that. And on the other hand, they're living in a moment where they can see what's going and they can they hear about what's going on in Haiti all the time. Yeah. So they're also living in a moment where there's this amazing example of black revolution. And, you know, one of the things that the Spanish do, one of the things that the Spanish are, is they're amazing record keepers, hmm. you know, and um, whenever there was a suspicion that enslaved people were conspiring or when they did conspire and rise up, which they did, there was a huge number of slave rebellions in Cuba in the aftermath of the Haitian revolution. None of them were successful, but the Spanish would bring in people and question them about what their plans were, who they talked to, how they thought they could defeat the Spanish or the whites. And one of the things that comes up in among the enslaved themselves is the example of Haiti. So mm. they say, we talked about, we talked, you know, they didn't call it Haiti yet then, but we, you know, we talked about Haiti and we knew that we wanted to be like Toussaint or Jean-Francois. So they would refer to some of the leaders of the Haitian revolution. Yeah. The, the Haitians became, they say, became masters of the land. They became masters of themselves. Wow. And, and so they were very, you know, inspired by that. So, so yes, the Haitian revolution had a huge impact materially, um, economically, socially, even, you know, intellectually, um, in the, in yeah. Cuba. Can I ask, uh, because I think we, we only discussed it very briefly, what at this period, you know, what became of the indigenous population of the, of the island, the Taino, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, right. Well, um, the, there's debates about the extent of of um of the death and of the of the genocide there's no question that it was that it was genocide uh some estimates say that 9 out of 10 indigenous people wow. died as a result of the 
of the conquest. But, but of course, not every indigenous person died. And because the Spanish then went off to Mexico and other places, there were indigenous communities that did survive and they kind of tried to survive, you know, in the mountains and places that were more remote and less easily accessible. So there is an indigenous community. Um, there are indigenous communities that, that survived, but, um, there's also, but it's a tiny fraction of what was there to begin with. So mm. it doesn't lessen the, you know, the brutality of the, of the conquest. And then there was yeah. also a lot of, uh, mixture with other, with other communities on the island, both Spanish and increasingly African. But, um, there's also a way in which indigenous culture survives in Cuba, and a mm. lot of Cubans don't even recognize it as indigenous culture. So, really? yeah, so especially you, it's especially noticeable um, in the language. There's all these words that are that aren't just Cuban words; they're Spanish words, and some of them have even made it into English that are original Taino words. So things like hurricane, really, comes from, yes, hurricane comes from huracan, which comes from an original. Uh, Taino word. That's one of the most, you know, you know, the, the same is true for the Spanish <laughs> yeah. word for sh the Spanish word for shark. Tiburon also has a, uh, a Taino, uh, root. So, uh, wow. so there are ways like that in which indigenous culture survived. Yeah. And then, you know, really interesting. So these Cuban scholars have done these studies and they found that about a third of Cuban women have uh, mitochondrial DNA that goes back to an indigenous woman. That is the line that is the maternal line that gets passed only from woman to woman. About 30% wow. of Cuban women have, have that. Uh, wow. That's, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, well, let's, let's talk about, uh, man, there's so much ground to cover. We only have a limited amount of time. Right. So, uh, you know, we're in this period where Cuba is, uh, a Spanish colony. America is, has long held dreams of annexing Cuba. Then it does yeah. not. Cuba eventually has its own revolution though. And, and yes. becomes free of Spain. How does that happen? Yeah. So the, the Cuban movement for independence really takes off in 1868. Uh, you have the first war of independence, which lasted 10 years. So it came to be known as the 10 years war. And, there's many interesting things about it. One is that it is started by a sugar planter, uh, a white sugar planter in eastern Cuba. Eastern Cuba is kind of this area that's not as technologically advanced as central and western Cuba. So if you think mm -hmm. about the large sugar plantations with massive enslaved populations, those are not in the east. Those are in the center and west. So in the east, you have kind of smaller plantations, a lot of coffee. And there, this this planter, Carlos Manuel de Céspedes, begins the first war of independence again uh, against Spain by freeing his own slaves. So he mm. gathers about 40 people who are enslaved on his uh, sugar mill. And he says, you are free. You are citizens. And he invites them to participate in the wars. Uh, in the war against Spain. And the war lasts 10 years. Many, many enslaved people join the forces of the rebels. Uh, many free black, because there's, there's a significant free uh, population of color in Cuba historically. There are many, and, and they're especially strong in Eastern Cuba. Many free men of color also join the movement and they kind of, and they ascend through the ranks. So you end up having um, men of color 
who are generals and, you know, mm. lieutenants and corporals and captains. And so, uh, here in a society that's still a slave society, you have this fascinating institution created, the Liberation Army, that really, you know, has to confront the question of race and slavery. And that yeah. kind of, uh, kind of, th that disrupts a lot of assumptions and a lot of, uh, hierarchies, sometimes unintentionally, but yeah. So that be so that begins. Um, they're defeated. Well, yeah. I, well, let me ask what what started that revolution. You said at the beginning it was a uh, a white sugar planter, and that makes me think uh, at first of the American Revolution, which was you know led by the wealthy landowners, right, by the people who owned the plantations, who said, "Well, right. we want to we want to run things rather than having you know the British monarch." Um, but it was ultimately you know it was the it was wealthy whites, right, um, right, right, uh, who began the revolution. But then yeah. the the picture you just drew of the army is very different. So yeah. So because basically it wasn't the wealthiest whites. So if you think about the the really powerful uh white planters, they're not they're not in eastern Cuba. They're in the central mm. west and they're basically they support Spain. Um they support Spain because they see it as a you know the as a you know as the status quo and they're fine with the status quo and also spain has given them concessions so allows them to trade with the united states their main market is in the united states uh so the u.s is a major force in the cuban economy already uh in the 19th century so it, the the revolution begins in the east more from these kind of middling whites precisely mm. because they've been left out of the economic expansion in the west and the and the center of the island um, and they want more, uh, and they want more power and they, and they, and they begin this revolution, not, not because they want to free the slaves, but the, if, if they, they see it as kind of as, as just as inevitable and as a necessary mm. part of their, of their struggle. And right before the revolution happened, uh, Spain had seemed willing to allow reforms and to give more, you know, a little more home rule to the island. And then that, that was frustrated. It was quashed before it could happen. So I think there was, it was a moment of escalating frustration with Spain. And so they began this war and, um, but they couldn't win. It ended up being a guerrilla war where, uh, the Spanish ultimately had more power and, and the, yeah. it lasted 10 years and the rebels were, uh, defeated and, and demoralized, but still it, it, it really transformed or it had the potential to transform the way that Cubans thought about the, about race, about slavery and about the connections between, between all those. And it's what I wrote my first book about. My first book was on these wars of independence. And there's a lot mm. there. There was, there was a second war almost immediately after in 17 in 1879 okay. 80 and well, you lose one war have a rematch yeah, right yeah, away you have a rematch and that you know it's a war that only lasts 10 months but it's fascinating at the sure. end of the first war one of the in the in the treaty that's signed with spain the spain agrees to free from slavery all those people who participated in the war uh, so hmm. about 16,000 people gain their freedom that way for having participated. Oh, so, okay. So you yeah. get uh, uh, not, like a consolation prize. You yes. lost the war, but ah, 
Yeah. We kind of amnesty in a way almost. Yeah, for for those. And then also it gives wow. other things too. It kind of it loosens up censorship laws so people are allowed to advocate independence publicly in writing as long as they don't mm-hmm. advocate violence. And it allows for the the reform the the peace treaty allows for the creation of Cuban political parties uh for the first time. So there are some concessions huh. given. Um, but yeah, anyway, I could, I could go on and on about this. I don't know how, how much further, uh, you want me to go, but I think, you know, maybe we could just, um, we could skip, you, we could, maybe we could skip ahead to the final war, which is the let's one do that, it. that, yeah. Um, this is the exciting one. So let's this, skip. Well, they're it. all really exciting. I could, t- I <laughs> so. could tell they are. I could tell they are, but yeah. there's the one I have most, the most questions about is the, yeah. is the final war. So the yes. final war. Actually, wait, wait, let's take a really quick break so okay. that I can read a couple ads. And when we come back, we will learn about the final exciting war. I, I'm sure there's a lot of things that aren't exciting about it, that, that are more, uh, war is never, never something to savor, but, uh, we'll be right back with more Ada Ferrer. <laughs> As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe. But approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment. And this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind, that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Ada Ferrer. Let's talk about this final war and about how Cuba finally won its independence from Spain. This is uh, such a pivotal event in the history of this hemisphere. And yet it's one that I know surprisingly little bit about. So little about. So please, yeah, enlighten me. Yeah. So, and it's actually a pivotal event for the history of the U.S. too. So, which is, Mm. which is uh, very important for, for your listeners. So the final war begins in 1895. And one of the main intellectual, the main intellectual leader is a man named Jose Marti, who spent most of his adult life in New York City. He was a New Yorker. 
uh, but he was, but he was Cuban and he advocated for independence from Spain. And he also thought that the, this, the coming Cuban revolution, the one that began in 1895, was a revolution for independence, but that was also a kind of, re- he referred to it sometimes as a revolution for the world, that Cuba would mm. be kind of a gift to the world after independence. And he saw, he saw, uh, you know, the way I, the way I see it is that he identified it that way for two reasons. One is that he thought that Cuba could be an example of a new kind of republic, right? Cuba had been a slave society until slavery ended in 1886, mm-hmm. but it was, its independence was being w- forged by a community that was multiracial, black and white. And he emphasized that there were black leaders of independence and white soldiers sometimes marched behind them uh, because they were making this nation together. So for Marti, the, the independence would produce a kind of a new kind of republic um, that stood against the racial violence that you were seeing in that oh. moment, in that very moment in the U.S. And which he wrote about also, because this is the, you know, the the the. It's after Reconstruction in the U.S. and the escalation of, and, of, lynch, of lynching and, and other just forms say, of violence. He's one of the fathers of this revolution. Yes. Um, and I have to say, I have a lot of friends who are Cuban New Yorkers, and I think mm-hmm. they might be very happy to hear that, that, yes. that, yeah. that this is a Cuban New Yorker. Yeah, he is such a New Yorker. He And he says, oh, New York, it's like death by a thousand cuts. You know, wow. like he talks about how, you know, and he commutes on the ferry from Brooklyn to lower Manhattan. Oh, he's my like, God. He's like an, an immigrant living in New York, trying to make a living and working hard, and yet, you know, involved in all this activism for Cuban independence. So he's very yeah. much a New he's very he's so Cuban, but he's also very much a New Yorker in my view. Anyway, so the 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 that was one way in which he thought the Cuban Revolution would be important for the world. The other thing he wrote about was Cuban independence serving as a kind of break or a check on U.S. expansionism. He mm. thought that the U.S. Uh, you know, was, was looking at Latin America, you know, a little too covetously. They wanted Latin, the U.S. Mm. wanted influence and power in Latin America. But the, he said the U.S. never really understood Latin America. And he wanted, you know, he was worried that the, the U.S. would come into Cuba, take it, and then from there kind of expand into Latin America. And so he wanted true Cuban independence to kind of not allow that to happen. Yeah. Right. So, so both is, so he, he favored this war as both a check on American expansionism as an, as an example of a, of an equal, of a republic built on racial equality. Yeah. So that was his idea. But you know, he died. He, he was living in New York. He decided he was going to go back. He was an intellectual. He was a writer, but he thought he had to fight in the war and write about it from within. But he was killed, you know, like a month after he arrived there. So he didn't (laughs) make it. This is why writers don't go pick up guns. You're not. Don't go pick up guns. Yeah. (laughs) It's not. Just keep writing. That's your your pen is your sword. Right. And then one of the other really important leaders is a man named Antonio Maceo, who was a man of color. You know, he was um, in the U.S. He would have he considered black. He never used that word for himself. But uh, he called himself a member of the class of color. And. He he had fought in all three wars, became a captain like a few weeks after joining the first war in 1868. He was a general by the end of that war, and he was a general in this war in 1895. And 
he led the insurgents all the way from Eastern Cuba to Western Cuba. Everyone, um, you know, he was, he was a, a hero. He, the, the whole, you know, there were people, young, young men in Havana wanted to be like him. Uh, African Americans in the U.S. named their sons after him. So if you look at, you know, if you were to go into something like genealogy.com and search for first names, Maceo, M-A-C-E-O, you'd find all kinds of African Americans across the U.S. who began taking his name in the late 1890s. Wow. They generally pronounced it Maceo. Not Maceo, but it was a wow. it was a common name among African Americans because he was a you know he was uh, a hero uh, a a black man with tremendous uh, military and intellectual gifts a leader of a inspiring movement anyway so all that happens Amazing. he's ki- he's killed also okay in, <laughs> all right in, in, in you know in eighteen ninety um in eighteen ninety at the very end of eighteen ninety six in December and um. Yeah, so what ends up happening, just to fast forward, um, by, by 1898, it, the Cubans are pretty convinced that they can win. The Spanish have tried all kinds of things against them. There was a, uh, a Spanish governor who everyone nicknamed the butcher, who tried to, who experimented with something called reconcentration, which is a kind of precursor for later concentration camps in mm-hmm. which he, um, Basically, the, the, the rebels, the Cubans were really strong in the countryside and he wanted to deny Cubans that support. So he w- he had the Spanish army kind of move people from the countryside, Cubans from the countryside into towns so that they could not support the insurgents in the countryside. So he moved them into towns, but there wasn't enough food. There wasn't hygiene. There wasn't housing. There wasn't medical care. And you had, uh, you know, over a hundred thousand people die. As a result of that policy, and it didn't work. You know, it was it didn't defeat uh, the Cuban army. Then Spain tried giving them like partial independence, and that didn't work. So anyway, by by the beginning of 1898, the Cubans were pretty convinced that they could win and that they would mm-hmm. win before the year is out. Then can I, in fe- can, can I just yeah. ask a quick question? Just yeah. something that I'm very curious about as I hear you talk about this. How did a Cuban you know, identity developed because the history that you've told me thus far is, you know, there was there's an indigenous population there. The Spanish came, you know, cover the whole thing in sugar plantations, uh, bring a lot of slaves over. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And but now you're talking about you've got you've got people who consider themselves Cubans, mm-hmm. multi-ethnic, uh, yeah. you know, sort of coalition of folks. Um, uh, how, how does that you know, what 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 is the Cuban identity at that point? grounded in when the entire island had basically been a gigantic plantation for, you know, a century at that point? Huh, that's a huge question. (laughs) (laughs) We can skip Uh, it and move on. Never mind. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm perfectly happy to skip it and move on, you know. But, um, you know, I I feel like there isn't one Cuban identity ever. Yeah. or entirely, you know, I feel like there's, there's different components of it. Yeah. Uh, but I think this is a really important moment in which a majority of the Cuban people are supporting independence from, from Spain, although they don't always know what it's going to mean after the fact, right? They yeah. don't know what the Republic's going to be, but there is support for that. And, um, I think one of the things that I found just accidentally in, in my research is all these, you know, uh, black Cubans, many descended, you know, from slaves 
who uh, in this period in the 1890s changed or, or or when they gained their freedom, the end of slavery was 1886, they gained their freedom, they changed their last names to Cuba. Wow. And that just is, you know, incredible um, to yeah. think about. So, uh, so I think it's something, I mean, I think Cuban identity was always uh, a work in progress. It always had to grapple with the question of race and the place of... Uh, of slaves and former slaves in the polity. It had to deal with the questions of the place of Spaniards, uh, in, in, you know, in, yeah. in the, in the Cuban nation. Um, uh, it had always to deal with the question of, of the U.S. and, yeah. and how much influence the U.S. would have. And would the U.S., and this was more a question for the 20th century, but would, would the presence of so many, of so many U.S. products and U.S. tourists kind of dilute Cuban identity, that was a question. So I feel like it, you know, it's, it's always an open, an open question. I don't think yeah. there's a definitive answer to it. Okay. Well, please, please go on with, yeah, with so, the story at that point. At that point. So they think they're going to win, you know, by before the end of 1898. But in that, in that moment in February of 1898, do you know what happens in February of 1898? No, I wish I did. <laughs> Once I say it, you'll say, "Oh yes, of course." The 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 American uh, ship, the USS Maine, USS Maine, uh, exploded in Havana Harbor, oh. and the Americans blamed the Spanish, and um, and the U.S. declared war on Spain by oh. April. Uh, so it's a so. It's a hugely important event because one of the things that it does is transform this 30-year struggle for Cuban independence that had been, you know, this, this rich, complex event into something that Americans know simply as the Spanish-American War. Yeah. And the Spanish-American War basically lasts four months. And the... The U.S. defeats Spain in Cuba and also in Puerto Rico and the Philippines. And the U.S., you know, and it kind of, it, it, it puts the Cubans in a terrible, terrible position because they've been, they've been fighting to defeat Spain for a really long time. Yeah. The U, the U.S. comes and kind of finishes the job after Spain is already uh, really weak. <laughs> hey, and we did it. We did it. <laughs> we did it. Um, and then the U.S., um, you know, it, it doesn't let this, the liberation army come in to celebrate, to, to recognize the armistice, right? So the, the Spanish will surrender a city and, and the U.S. prevent Cuban, prevents Cuban troops from entering. Uh, the U.S. signs a treaty with Spain, the Treaty of Paris, uh, and doesn't allow the Cubans to the, to the table. In the mm. negotiation, so basically, it turns a Cuban War of Independence and 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 transforms it into a war between Cuba and Spain. Sorry, into a war between the U.S. and Spain, in which Cuba wow. doesn't even deserve a mention. So, wow. so it's so hugely uh, important, and it's also it's it has a lot of uh, relevance going forward uh, for two reasons. One that has to do with actual facts on the ground and one that has to do more with questions of historical memory. So in terms of historical memory, the Americans will always see, tend to see, for, for decades after, would always refer to that moment 
as a moment, as a kind of benevolent moment, right? The U.S. went in and helped a neighbor in need. Mm -hmm. Cuba was suffering. They wanted their independence. And the U.S. went in and helped them win independence. The Mm -hmm. U.S. secured independence for Cuba. Mm -hmm. And therefore, Cuba owes us a debt of gratitude. And that that vision of kind of Cuba as indebted to the U.S. really marks the history of of the relationship between the two countries um, up until the revol- you know up until the beginning of the revolution. Yeah, well, when you uh, say that fifty nine, when you say that the history of the countries are so entwined, I mean that's the that is very very obvious from the fact that the United States meddled in the independence, uh, and yeah. you know that at the moment of the birth of the nation, the United States is like inextricably intertwined with it. Right, exactly. And and the Cubans see that moment very differently. So they, you know, they see it as the U.S. swooping in at the end and taking a victory that belonged to them. Um, and and so it's a it's a, it's it's this moment where the two histories are completely intertwined, but the dominant vision in both countries is completely opposed. Right? Yeah. They see it. They see it completely differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a very uh, important book that's published in Havana in 1950 that has as the title Cuba does not owe its independence to the United States. <laughs> you know, it's a very blunt, <laughs> a blunt title, but you know, again, it's that's like the, it's a, it's a source of dispute and tension for for decades and decades. But so then Cuba is at that point an independent nation with its own government. What does that government look like? Well, it isn't because okay. that's just, I mean, okay. that's one of the, that, so that's one of the sources of the resentment. So when the war ends and they sign the Treaty of Paris, the U.S. Uh, occupies Cuba. So ah. the government, the government of Cuba, when the Spanish are finally defeated and Spain evacuates the island after 500 years of rule, or sorry, 400 years of rule. Um, the, 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 the government of Cuba is American. There, mm. is, the Spanish flag comes down and American flag is raised in its place. Okay. The governor's palace is occupied by an, a U.S. governor. Wow. And, and it's the, it's a military occupation. So it's the U.S. army that's in charge of Cuba, uh, for, for four years. Wow. Till nineteen oh two. So that's a, again another source of of deep resentment. How long and, does that last? Uh four so about the first time, because it would happen again later, uh four years. So they okay. they occupy it officially beginning on January first, eighteen ninety nine. That's when the Spanish flag comes down. And they occupy it until the twentieth of May nineteen oh two. And so the government of Cuba in that period is an American government. How do we then get to a point where I mean, <laughs> where where the where Cuba is truly independent? Well, that's you know that's a source of debate uh, because the Americans do leave in 1902, uh, but they only leave if the Cubans agree to include in their constitution, their sovereign constitution, an appendix called the Platt Amendment. And the Platt Amendment was, you know, proposed originally by U.S. Senator Orville Platt, and it gives the U.S. the right to intervene in Cuba militarily. <laughs> really? Un- uninvited by 
by the Cubans. So the Platt Amendment um, takes effect after the Americans leave, and it basically says the U.S. has the right to intervene to preserve, you know, life, liberty, prosperity, happy, happiness. I can't remember the exact wording right now, but so it basically, you know, it only leaves after Cuba recognizes and cedes that right to the United States, wow. the right of intervention. And then it also includes other things. And it's the Platt Amendment also says that the Cuban government can ne- cannot enter into a treaty with a third government. So basically doesn't give treaty making powers to the Cuban government. It also says that the Cuban government cannot contract debt uh, with another with another government. So uh, so basically it limits uh, the rights of the Cuban government in, in, in really and substantial fundamental ways. It also uh, sets aside land for what becomes the Guantanamo Naval Base. Oh, I had to I say always, that. I yeah. always wondered why. <laughs> yeah, like, now why, you why, know. <laughs> why do we have what? a naval base in Cuba? That seems yeah. odd. It's because it was literally, what, written into the constitution of Cuba. Into the appendix, yes, into the appendix. And that, no, actually, well, the, the land for the land for the naval and coaling stations was written into the constitution. And then there was a treaty a year after that then granted the right to Guantanamo and set the terms. But so... Yeah. I mean, in the story of America meddling in, you know, Latin America and then, you know, other countries in this yeah. part of the world and, you know, Marti's fear, right? That was the exact right. fear that you said he was worried yes. about. I mean, that is, that's exactly what came to pass. I mean, essentially, yeah, you can be your own country, but you have to be like a client state of the United right. States and just, right. you know, we can come and do whatever we want there whenever we feel yeah. like we'll leave you alone for now, but watch your back. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So that's a very odd situation for a nation to be in i would make sh- i want to make sure that we bring the story of fidel castro into this story uh and and start weaving in that piece so tell me tell me about that yeah so as a result of the Platt amendment and this relationship to the us you have over the course of the 20th century uh you know a posi- different different intellectual and political positions emerge. So in the 1920s, you have what's, what some historians called a nationalist awakening. And what that means is that, that people are, are especially student, you know, university students, high school students, lawyers, feminists, others are very uh, vocal in rejecting U.S. interference in, mm-hmm. in Cuba. So that becomes, uh, kind of a part of mainstream Cuban politics from the 1920s on. In 1933, there's a revolution that is seeking both progressive uh, economic and social gains, like agrarian reform and, and other things, and that also wants to limit the, 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 the place of the U.S. in Cuban politics. Okay, that, that, that revolution is defeated uh, in an alliance between the U.S., uh, ambassador and a man named Fulgen- Fulgencio Batista, I've heard who this will name. be very uh, important later on. And but but I say all that we don't need to get into the all the details about this because it is a you know a confusing political period. But I say all that to just emphasize that when people think about Fidel Castro and what would happen later, they sometimes think that he kind of came out of nowhere, that he represents something that was. Uh, more f- foreign and Soviet, etc. And I just want to emphasize that some of the things that he used to say before coming to power were things that were part of mainstream Cuban political discourse before. So the the search 
um, the 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 um, the desire for an agrarian reform, um, yeah. the 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 critique and repudiation of of government corruption was a huge part of his platform and of the platform of many others in the 1940s and 1950s. Anyway, so you have you have a society that's that's vibrant politically in which there's a strong tradition of civic protest. Labor unions mm. are really strong. The students are an incredible. The university students are an incredible political force. Um, and so that's kind of deep background, stated very quickly. Yeah. In 1952, there's a coup. You have um, Fulgencio Batista is running for president. Uh, he's running a distant third, and he knows he's going to lose. So he stages a, a coup uh, shortly before the election and takes power. Okay. At mm. that point, Fidel uh, Fidel was actually running for Senate in that election that, that, that the coup cancels out. Uh, so that happens in 52. In 53, uh, Fidel Castro stages an attack on the Moncada barracks where he kind of, uh, you know, attacks the second largest military installation in the country. He's defeated, you know, roundly. It's a, it's a, it's the, the attack is a total failure, though in, in historical memory would be you know, the revolution would later cast it as kind of the point of origin of the revolution. So he comes out of, he comes out of that. Um, but I also want to emphasize that because he would be the one to take power in 1959, people assume, they assume two things. They assume that the revolution was his from the start and it wasn't. There were many, many revolutionary groups fighting against Batista mm. and he wasn't really the most important or the most prominent until fairly late, until, um, you know, until mid 1957, say. Yeah. Uh, he and was it's just one of many. And it's coming out of like a historic dissatisfaction with being ruled by other nations right whether it be spain or or the united states yeah, it's like that's the, yeah that's part of it also uh you know economic frustration the, one of the most important um things to catalyze people in the movement is also against corruption uh you've had a a, a slew of recent very corrupt governments so like if you look at fidel's program in 1953, when he attacks the barracks, it's for agrarian reform. It's anti, um, anti-corruption. It's for mm -hmm. the restitution of a, of a progressive constitution that had been, uh, promulgated in 1940, right? It, it isn't, he isn't explicitly anti-American, um, in yeah. the beginning. So, uh, yeah. And then the other thing is that when Fidel Castro comes to power, he comes to power as a result of this, broad mobilization against Batista. And many, many different kinds of people took part in that. You had housewives, you had, you know, Catholics were really, Catholic students were really prominent in it. University students, uh, feminists, etc. So um, the commu Cuba's Communist Party mm -hmm. did not, did not support Fidel Castro's movement until the very end really until until march of 1958 because the communist the communists had been allied with batista for a long time so these are the things that just they don't make sense you know on, on some level yeah. you think about them and it's like they don't fit these preconceived boxes that people have because people tend americans tend to think of fidel castro as having uh you know having led this communist revolution right yeah but the but the revolution 
in the beginning, when it was fighting to defeat Batista, was not at all communist. The communist by the communist party didn't support it. The things, the the program of the revolution was not communist in content. It didn't foresee, you know, a, a, a communist. Uh, you know, a centralized communist <laughs> state or a socialist takeover of the economy. That was not part of, of the program of the revolution. So, wow. which is really, really important. So really, the, I mean, the, the revolution, the revolution is de Fidel Castro declares the revolution socialist in April of 1961 in the immediate context of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, so it's something that happens a little later. And those two years are just fascinating because it's like, so much is going on, you know, Batista leaves, but no one knows what's going to happen. No one knows what kind of, what's going to take Batista's yeah. place. So what you have is a scenario in which you have all these Cubans have, have contributed to this, right? But no one knows which of those Cubans is ultimately, or what group is ultimately going to determine the fate wow. of Cuba. And nobody knows what the U.S. is going to do either, which is another major part of the equation. As always. Yeah. Well, and it goes to show how you know important it is to look at history from a non-American perspective, because that's uh, I, yes, I mean, I don't know where I absorbed it, but the the ambient history I absorbed was that, yeah, the communist, you know, Fidel Castro led a communist revolution that overthrew. I, I honestly wasn't really sure who, like, you know, my understanding didn't go that far back. You know, when we hear yeah, about yeah. Bay of Pigs, it's like very, a very limited bit of story. And right. we don't see it from that, from that vantage right. point. That's right. why, God, that's so fascinating. Okay. Well, but, you know, Castro's regime ends up like, there's all the, the you know, the, you're, we've described as a very long period of instability. Um, mm -hmm. And his regime ultimately lasts a very long time, does it not? Yes, yes. And so how that, how is that? Yeah, like, yeah, like that brings you know. us to the modern period, I guess. And what would you yes. say characterizes it? If we look at it from this, you know, again, non-American perspective, how does it look right. from the other from the other perspective? Yeah, one of the things when people think about, you know, the, the revolution and how we get to the present is they tend to think about the whole period as one thing, right? So, mm. um, so they think about 62 years of X. And, um, right now there's a lot of protests going on in Cuba. There's protests scheduled to happen today. Mm. People, people who support the protest will talk about, um, 62 years of dictatorship as if those 62 years were all one thing. Mm. But in the beginning, it was a social revolution. A social revolution is not a dictatorship. So you have to kind of break down the period and think about when it changed and how it changed and what caused those changes over time. Yeah. On the Cuban government side, they talk about 62 years of revolution as if it were all one thing, as if the government today was a revolutionary government, you know, yeah. Exactly parallel to the revolutionary government of 1959 or, yeah. or, you know, or 70 or something. And that just isn't the case. There is nothing now that makes the Cuban government a revolutionary government. Ah. That's, you know, it's a government that's been in power for, for, um, for over 62 years. It's, it's power is completely consolidated. It's, it, it, it's, it has, it controls, uh, media, education, every aspect of, um, of life. It's not, um, and, and there's no, 
uh, spontaneous mobilization supporting it. So you can't talk about it as a revolutionary Yeah, there's, there's no current revolutionary movement that's that's yeah keeping yeah, it's it an, keeping it's it an entrenched it's an entrenched government that's been uh mm-hmm. in place and and is seeking to to maintain its power yeah yeah uh well what is i mean when again the theme of your book is the intertwined relationship of cuba and america how does that intertwine continue i mean i know about the you know, 60 odd years of American presidents fulminating about, you know, communist Cuba and dictatorship and whatnot. Right, That's been right. my experience of it. But what are the what are the deeper intertwinings? The two governments, the not just the governments, but the people, the societies, the country still, you know, remained intertwined, remained intertwined today. And when a few years ago, when Obama opened up to Cuba and, and Raul Castro, uh, was obviously a, a part of that opening. One side couldn't have done it alone. There was a sense that the relationship might change, mm-hmm. that, um, that something, that something would shift, that the permanent state of hostility and animosity would, it wouldn't disappear entirely, but there would be more cracks in it and more opportunities for, you know, for, for people to people contact. Yeah. Um, and I was in Cuba when Obama was there and talked to lots and lots of people. And, and there was a real sense of possibility and hope, the sense that something might shift a little bit. People were starting to open little businesses because there were also some reforms on the Cuban side and they expected more American tourists to come so their businesses would flourish. And, and they had, they had really, they didn't think things would be suddenly, you know, uh, paradise or anything, nothing like that, but they did expect uh, a shift. Uh, and then all that was, was, you know, was quashed with the election of, of Donald Trump. Many mm. Cubans expected Biden to return, not, not to return to all of Obama's policies, but to start chipping away at Trump's new restrictions. And that hasn't happened. And one of the reason, there are many reasons it hasn't happened, but one is that Biden's had a lot on his plate, right? But, uh, but also that there were protests in Cuba in July and the government responded very repressively. And so it became hard in that context for Biden to ease restrictions without being seen to be, um, you know, placating the Cuban government yeah. at a moment where he didn't want to be seen that way. And particularly when you think about the Florida vote, because Cuba, yeah. U.S. Cuba policy is always in part about the Florida vote. Well, and that's, so, yeah. that's one of the really interesting things about Cuba in the United States, because it's one of the few nations that we have a, you know, large group of Americans who have a strong I would maybe say nationalistic stance on the country. Israel is another example where there's a, you know, we have a, a, you know, it's part of American politics is Mm -hmm. uh, wrapped up in, you know, expatriates who uh, have, you know, very, very strong feelings and vote accordingly. I mean, I I remember I was, uh, you know. Uh, campaigning for a candidate for our local city council um, who has endorsed uh, our local city council candidate who is endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America, which is a local you know group here, uh, one of the many groups to endorse this candidate. And I was tabling and a guy walks by and says, I could never vote for her because she's endorsed by the Democratic Socialists and I'm Cuban. She, that's crazy. I could never vote for her. And I was like, that's so this has nothing to do. The one has nothing to do with the other. Right. But, you know, that politics is so present for uh, a lot of folks in the United States. And that's 
kind of unusual. I mean, you know, th- that's not the case with Japan or any, <laughs> you know, many, yeah. many other countries that we have relations with. But right. that's something that, yeah, Biden would have to think about when coming yeah, out with thinking about his foreign policy. Absolutely. But, you know, and one of the there's so many interesting things there, because a lot of times when people think about the Cuban lobby in South Florida, people think about that old Cuban guard who fled Fidel Castro to protect their properties and blah, blah or because they lost their properties, rather. And when, but that's actually, they're not so, um, they're not the dominant group anymore. The majority, the, not the majority, but the largest group of, of Cuban Americans in South Florida right now are people who came to the U.S. after the 1990, in the 1990s and after. So people who, who arrived in the U.S. after the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. So these are not people who lost property to the Cuban Revolution. They were people who were educated. They were, they're children of the revolution. They were, they, they probably worked for the Cuban state. They went to, to Cuban state schools because all schools are Cuban state schools, right? So they're recent arrivals. They're not some like wealthy, um, you know, mm-hmm. wealthy, uh, old right wing, right? Yeah. They're, but they are, they are among Trump's strongest supporters, the people who arrived more recently. Yeah. And why is that, do you think? I don't, th- I've never really seen a satisfactory, a completely satisfactory answer to that question. I think it has to do with, uh, with something that the, the person who went by your table said. It's like they've left, they've decided to leave, they've reject, so they reject anything mm. that reminds them of that. Mm. And of course, if you say someone's a socialist, that's, that's, that's what the Cuban government was in theory. So, so they reject that. So it's it's the same name at the very least. Yeah. At the very least. Right. So they, they reject anything that reminds them of that. Um, yeah, of, of, of their, of their, of their own government in Cuba. So it's, um, I think that's a large part of it. Well, let me ask you this to finish. I mean, you said that there was a sense that uh, there was a new uh, day in the relationship uh, between the United States and Cuba when Obama, um, you know, loosened some of those restrictions and the embargo. Um, do you feel that it, the relations are actually moving into a new period that will that will see something new in the relation between these two countries? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I love, I love no. the firm answer. <laughs> I, you know, really, it's too soon. It's too soon to tell. Uh, yeah. I think, and I think a lot of it depends on what happens in Cuba in the coming days and weeks. Right there's the uh, the protests in July were brutally quashed. Hundreds of people were arrested. Of those, hundreds still remain. Uh, in jail. There's new protests that are planned for today. And mm. the, the government, you know, the, 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 the government's being really efficient, uh, in, in responding to it. So it's not, you know, independent journalists are being, not allowed to leave the house, their houses or apartments to cover it. You know, known activists and dissidents have like state security forces outside their homes, not letting them leave. You know, some of the dissidents have said, put out, you know, white sheets as a sign of support and for the release of prisoners, et cetera. And if someone puts mm. up white sheets, they're harassed or they're taken down or they're right. So, so nobody knows, nobody knows what will happen today, uh, with the yeah. protests, much less what's going to happen, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen weeks and months down the line. What I would say is that in general, when Americans take 
a hard, when the American government takes a hard line, it kind of, um, depending on how that's phrased and pursued, that can alienate a lot of the world. I mean, I think part of the reason Cuba, re, re, you know, retains so much support across the world is because it is a symbol of kind of standing up to U.S. interference. Right. right. Historically, going back decades, that's and, and the and Cuban, the Cuban government knew how to use that to its advantage. Yeah. And so when when the when the U.S. government speaks in that kind of language of trying to, of you know, it, it kind of alienates um, other countries. So, for example, the U.S. a few months ago tried to get a lot of the world to condemn the U.S., uh, sorry, the U.S. tried to get a lot of the world to condemn uh, Cuban attacks on the protesters, and very few countries joined the U.S. in part because mm. of this older history. So I think the U.S. should avoid anything that that smacks of of overt interference. There are some elected officials in South Florida who begin always when something like this happens begin calling for U.S. intervention. The U.S. should make clear that that is never that that is not. An option, you know, they, they, I think they would do well to, to soften the language and talk about the need for, for dialogue and negotiation. Yeah. You know, cause, it, cause I mean, the U.S. isn't going to be served if there's, if there's a violent explosion in Cuba, right? Yeah. That's, that's not going to serve anyone. Uh, not the U.S., certainly not Cuba. So, so you, you want, you want, um, most Cubans do want change, but they want peaceful change and talk of intervention and really kind of hostile, aggressive talk doesn't doesn't serve that. Yeah, I mean, for all the all the you know failings of the of the government and everything else, it seems like a big part of the U.S. stance has been based on the U.S. not accepting that this is an independent nation. <laughs> you know that, and, and so, you know we have our sphere of influence, and we expect countries within it to you know, be part of our sphere and not do their own thing. And, you know, they, they defy us at their peril seems right. to be yeah. a and big then the, part the, of it. Right. And Cubans have always known how to, how to turn that to their advantage, the Cuban government. Yeah. So, so it doesn't, it, it's, it's a, it's a foolish kind of policy to pursue. So. Well, Ada, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show to talk to us about it. Thank you. This has been sure. fascinating. I really appreciate thank you. it. Yeah. Uh, the book is called Cuba and American History. Folks can pick it up at our special uh, bookshop that I will give the URL to in the outro or wherever you get your books. Ada Ferreira, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you once again to Ada Ferrer for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you want to check out her book, Cuba and American History, once again, you can go to our special bookshop at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media or at adamconover.net. If you want to send me an email, you can send it to factually at adamconover.net. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Factually. That was a HeadGum Podcast.